The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are together on a mountaintop, and Jesus is transfigured. He's not spotlit from above, but he's just shining. His face shines like the sun, his clothes become white as light. It's a startling spectacle, but you have enough puzzle pieces to fit it all together. This is the eternal Son of God, who was made man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Since then, he's looked like just another guy, not even especially good-looking or a standout in any way from those around him. But it's not that he gave up being God, through whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. He has simply, humbly concealed his divinity, cloaking his godhood in human flesh as he walks among sinners, healing their diseases and casting out demons with a word or two. He's been fulfilling this prophecy and then that one, proving himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. In the previous chapter, though, he's delivered a stunner to his disciples. He's told them that he's going to be the Savior by suffering betrayal and death at the hands of sinners, which seems like a very ungod thing to do. From then on, his eyes are fixed toward Jerusalem, and he's making his way toward the Good Friday where he is stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Before he ascends to heaven as glorious God, he will first on the cross look the least glorious of all. So now, before all that takes place, Jesus is transfigured on top of the mountain in front of Peter, James, and John. He makes it clear that when he goes to the cross to redeem rebellious sinners, God is going to the cross to redeem rebellious sinners. He's not alone on the mountaintop. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament heavyweights, are with him, talking with him. Well, why Moses and Elijah? There are a lot of ideas why. 
In the Gospels here and there, Jesus refers to the Old Testament by its nickname, the Law and the Prophets. And in Moses and Elijah, you have both the one who wrote down the Law and the top-tier prophet in some of the worst days of Israel. In which case, the presence of Moses and Elijah teaches that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, it's true that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but Elijah is kind of a funny pick if these two symbolize the Old Testament because Elijah never wrote anything. He was a courageous preacher who performed some mighty miracles, but there's no book of Elijah among the prophets. So if the law and the prophets, the Old Testament is the point here, it would make sense to find, say, Moses and Isaiah talking to Jesus. It's more likely that it's Moses and Elijah as another announcement that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world because the king of heaven is in the world and on his way to the cross. Moses is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, the one who leads God's people out of bondage in Egypt, across the wilderness to the doormat of the promised land. And Elijah is a type of John the Baptist. Malachi was one prophet who declared that before the Messiah appeared, Elijah would come again. And Jesus himself declares that John the Baptist is that Elijah. If that's the case, then the transfiguration is the handing off of the baton. As Moses and Elijah pointed to the coming kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament, Jesus and John the Baptist declare that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Again, this is because the king of heaven has arrived. And to make the point, the king of heaven is both in the flesh and shining like the sun. That's probably a big part of the reason for Moses and Elijah, but let's not forget that these two have another thing in common. They each encountered God on a mountaintop. In fact, they both encountered God on top of Mount Sinai. Moses met God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. He just led the already grumbly Israelites out of Egypt, following the Lord who cloaked himself in a glorious pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Lord led them to Mount Sinai, told them to pitch camp at the bottom of the hill, and then summoned Moses to the top. While Israel waited all too impatiently below, Moses ascended to where God had descended, covering the peak with smoke and fire and lightning. And there, God gave Moses his law, the Ten Commandments, and much more. One of the things, in fact, that God commanded Moses to do was to build the tabernacle, the tent of God. The tabernacle was the mobile temple. Whenever Israel set up camp and the people pitched their tents, the priest would pitch the tent of God in the middle of the camp. And that tent had two rooms— The outer room, the holy place, was where the priests went about some of their labors. The inner room, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, that was the dwelling place of God. Whenever the Israelites camped and the priests set up the tabernacle, that glorious pillar of cloud and fire would descend onto the tabernacle and enter the most holy place. Not to get too far off track, but this is important. Even though God is present everywhere, he chose to dwell with his people in a particular location. 
His people could look at the tabernacle, point at it, and say, even though God is everywhere, he is there in that tent for us. Now, Elijah met God on Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19. He just won an incredible contest against 450 prophets of Baal, not to mention another 400 prophets of Asherah. It was a death match, 850 to 1, to see whose God was real and able to answer prayer. Elijah didn't just win, but the Lord won that day convincingly. The false prophets were killed, though Queen Jezebel put a price on Elijah's head. He fled into the wilderness and, sustained by God, made his way to Mount Sinai, where he camped in a cave. There, tired, alone, and dejected, he asked God to die. Instead, the Lord passed by Elijah with a great wind, an earthquake, and a consuming fire. But in each case, says 1 Kings 19, the Lord was not in the wind, the quake, or the fire. After those things, he spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice, promising help and hope and deliverance. Here in our gospel reading, you find Moses and Elijah meeting God on another mountain, and this time God is both glorious and in the flesh. Maybe this is a good time to throw one more Bible verse into the mix. It's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word made flesh. As God spoke to create all things, all things were made through Jesus. Jesus then became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, the word for dwelt in Greek, it's tented among us. As God was present in the tabernacle in the wilderness, so Jesus was present in the tabernacle of his flesh, born of Mary. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus, the Word made flesh dwelling among us, and we know from Luke that they are talking about his death and resurrection. It's about then that Peter decides to speak as he beholds these three mighty men. And so Peter proposes, blurts, whatever, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, this is a good plan if Moses and Elijah are equals with Jesus. Peter ought to know better. Why, just last chapter in Matthew 16, Peter was the one who said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when Peter proposes three tents, Peter gets corrected. A bright cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night kind of cloud, it overshadows them, and God the Father speaks. He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, three tents? Three tents? I'll show you a tent. 
I'll show you the word made flesh and tenting among you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Look, Moses was a mighty man of God. And I'm sure that if he showed up here alive, he would likely suck up all the air in the room just by being him. The same goes for Elijah. But they're both sinners in need of redemption, and they're only alive to talk to Jesus because Jesus has come to redeem them too. And that's why Peter gets the royal rebuke when he puts Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. Above all, even Moses and Elijah, Peter, listen to him. Even when he's not radiating light but leaking blood on a cross, listen to him. To make Jesus just one voice among Moses and Elijah would be like you or me saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm really into Christianity for all of those laws that I can't keep. Or, sure, I believe in Jesus, and I'm really into Christianity for the emotional high points it provides. It'd be ridiculous to say that if Jesus were alive and well and present, to acknowledge that he was here and then pay little attention to him, right? Right? The wonder of the transfiguration is not that a man can light up a mountaintop by self-radiating. The miracle here is still that God has become man and that he quickly cloaks that glory in the flesh again so that he can take your place in death on a cross. The wonder continues today because Jesus, the word become flesh, continues to make sure that his holy saving word is spoken to his people. And where that word is spoken, the word made flesh, Jesus is present, present to save. The wonder continues in that Jesus, who cloaked his glory in human flesh to tent among us, he now dwells in a tabernacle of bread and wine to give you his body and blood. It's one of the reasons the elements are under a tent-shaped veil on the altar before the sacrament. Why does Jesus do this? It is for you and for your salvation. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-6, your tent is falling apart. St. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. Because of your sin... Your tent, your flesh, is falling apart, and you'd be headed to eternal death. That's why Jesus became flesh, so that he might clothe you in his righteousness until he raises you from the dead, clothed in flesh that will never die. For now you groan and you're burdened, 
But be of good courage, eyes and ears on Jesus. Take and eat, take and drink, and always, always listen to him. For he is your life and salvation, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.